Welcome back to semester two. It's great to see you here, week one. Um, we've got a lot on this semester, which is really exciting, as Cara was telling you, uh, mission weeks uh, in weeks three and four. Uh, and as part of what we're doing uh, for the kind of the larger picture of evangelism on campus is that in public meetings this semester, we're going to be working through Mark's gospel in tandem with the things that we do with mission. Because the whole purpose of what we're trying to do is that no matter where we get um, people to come and visit us, whether it's public meeting or the Mark drama or the other events, we want to be encouraging you guys to be reading Mark Uncover, the little booklet that you might have seen floating around in the CU room, uh, which is basically the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And we want to be encouraging you to invite your friends to be reading that with you. Uh, And so to kind of help you do that, you would have noticed that we're doing it in small groups. So the up years did last semester. The first years will be doing it this semester in small groups. But we also want to track through Mark during public meetings as well uh, to give you that little bit extra confidence uh, as you you read uh, the the gospel, as you kind of pull it open in front of your friend so that you can kind of go, okay, I'm sort of, I'm I'm, I'm at sea, but I'm I'm steady and I can really push through this and actually be brave and and bring the gospel to bear in their lives. So that's kind of what we're thinking about this semester. Uh, Today is a bit special. You would have noticed that we're not actually in Acts, we're uh, in Mark, sorry, we're in Acts. Uh, There's a whole bunch of different reasons for that. But really, today is about scene setting. Uh, We want to frame what we're thinking about this semester. So as we begin at the Christian Union together, uh, we'll be prepared to think rightly about mission uh, and and help us do that. So to do that, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Uh, There's an ocean liner called the Queen Mary. Uh, and she sits in Long Bay in California. I've never been to America, but you know, I'm trusting the picture, so it must be there. Uh, and the thing that's significant about this ship is that it's been turned into a museum. So if you go there today, uh, you can actually board the ship. It's kind of permanently docked in the harbour. Uh, and the reason it's become a museum is because of its peculiar history. Uh, It looks like a luxury cruise ship, that's because at once upon a time it was, Uh, but at a certain point in its life of service, it became a troop transport for World War II. So where it used to carry, you know, 3,000 very rich people, it started to carry 15,000 very smelly people. Uh, And so you can actually walk into this ship, it's really quite fascinating, Um, And on the one side, you can kind of look at the side of the room and and you see the opulent dining settings and the beautiful places that they would have uh, just slept in and and had dinner with and and around. And it's even a hotel these days. You can actually go and relive that experience. But as you're walking through this museum, you can look to the other side and you see the ship fitted out as it was during wartime. So instead of this beautiful, comfortable bed, you've just got like floor to ceiling, disgusting hammocks filled with smelly people where deodorant hadn't been invented. Same boat, two completely different times, peacetime, wartime. And what the Queen Mary tells us is an important principle for the Christian life. Uh, The way that we live is determined by the time in which we live. Uh, And we all know that's true, don't we? A couple of weeks ago, you might have even forgotten about it. I kind of vaguely had forgotten about it too. But a couple of weeks ago, we had a four-day lockdown. And that completely changed the way that we live. The Delta variant was loose in Perth. um, And so we stayed in our homes. We didn't go out. We didn't touch strangers. uh, And that's because the times that we were living in were pandemic times. Four days later, the times changed. Lockdown was lifted. We went out. We spent time outdoors with friends. We hugged people. Maybe we even hugged strangers. We stopped wearing masks. The times had changed. And so the way that we lived changed. And so, like I said before, as we begin this semester at the Christian Union, 
I want to ask you a question. It's a framing question. And the question is this. What time is it? What is the time that you live in? Because how you answer that question will determine how you behave and how you live. The choices you make, the priorities that you have, where you put your time and your energy, whether you turn up at the Christian Union, whether you go to church, whether you actually bother to do that assignment, whatever it may be, the time that you live in will influence the things that you do. And in today's passage in Acts chapter 2, something happens that changes the time that we live in forever. And it's not a declaration of war. It's not an outbreak of a pandemic. Uh, But it's like those two things because it completely flips the way that we understand life. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to let Acts chapter 2 kind of set our watches and put us in the proper time and prepare us for the semester ahead. There's a lot happening. I explained a bit of it before. And we need to know why we're doing what we're doing as a Christian union to be persuaded to take part. And my hope is that you will be persuaded, uh, not because we think it's a good idea, but because the things that we're doing are, are being motivated by the scriptures. And so the way that we're going to do that, we're going to do it in three stages, and they're there on your outline. The first is that we're going to look at the event verses 1 to 13. Uh, We're then going to look at the explanation of that event, which is kind of really verses 14 down to 36. And then we're going to return to the third point, the implications, and come back to that question. And I want to ask again, what time is it? So if you've got your Bibles, it's good to have them out. Um, Pro warning, I didn't tell the Tuesday guys this, so maybe this makes you special than them, I'm not sure. Um, Next week, there's going to be a hectic amount of Bible flipping when we're in Mark chapter 1, so this thing might be helpful. But second best is obviously your outline, because that also has God's Word there. So whichever one you have, have it out in front of you. Um, Let's start with the event in verses 1 to 13, which Josh read out for us just before. Um, So let's set the scene. Chapter 2, verse 1. What do we read there? It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they, that is to say the disciples of Jesus, were all together in one place. Uh, Now, why were they there in one place? Um, Well, this is where you get to do a little bit of Bible flipping. If you go back to the previous chapter uh, over the page, you'll see there in chapter 1, verse 5, verse 4 and 5, that Jesus, before he had ascended to heaven, had left them with an instruction. So just kind of this is where we're at at the moment. Jesus has died. He's raised, uh, been raised to life again. He's ascended to heaven. And just before he'd done that, he'd said to them this in verse 4. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so when we get into chapter 2, that's what we're waiting for. They're all gathered in the room And they're waiting, and as readers, we're kind of watching on and we're waiting with them, waiting for the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit to be fulfilled. And they're all gathered in the room, and we hit verse 2, and we find out suddenly, you know, like it's just, you know, this is how Luke is trying to get us to, to jump into the scene. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and here's the key line, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, so that's interesting. Pigeonhole that observation, because we're going to come back to that. But let's keep reading for now, because we want to let this event play out. Uh, Luke, he zooms back out, and then he says in verse 5, Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. 
Now, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together, sort of kind of self-explanatory, it makes sense that, that would happen, in bewilderment. Why? Because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each one of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Uh, if you had a kind of a map in your mind of the Mediterranean, basically we're basically going around every part of the Mediterranean and just naming the regions. So here we have Jews literally from every part, every nation in the world, happen to be in Jerusalem for a festival and they're gathered together. And what do they say at the end of verse 11? We hear them, the disciples, declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now, this in and of itself is, is pretty phenomenal. Um, but let's do some more translation here. Uh, because when they ask, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? What they're asking is, aren't these who are speaking rednecks? Because you've got to remember, Galilee up in the north of Israel was Hicksville. These were the people that kind of rode alligators and cruised around in the swamps and, and, and ate their, their kind of dead relatives. I'm not sure what they did um, in the swamps. But, but this is the sort of kind of picture that we've got. So these aren't your kind of cosmopolitan, kind of bilingual, trilingual people kind of rock up with their croissant and then they, uh, they start speaking French but then switch to German as soon as their, their friend kind of turns up, right? These are not the sort of people that you'd be expecting to speak another language. They're not even speaking their own language good. And yet here they are, speaking the languages of every nation under heaven. This doesn't happen every day, does it? So quite naturally, the crowd is kind of gathers together and they're left wondering what to do with it. And we see there in verses 12 and 13 that they have two responses. The first response, the first group in verse 12, are amazed and perplexed. They have no idea what this means, but they do know that whatever it is, it must be significant. And so they're asking themselves, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? Uh, the, the second group uh, in verse 13 uh, do the opposite. They dismiss it. They mock the disciples. They say they're drunk. Now, this is kind of hard to get your head around when you think about it, uh, because in my opinion, if, if being drunk made you bilingual, I think we would see a lot more drunk students over at the International Affairs uh, buildings, don't you? A lot more drunk people at the UN. Um, and, and yet, regardless of what uh, these people and their kind of logical fallacies are, are doing, you really have this kind of second group of people who are just like, yeah, whatever, this doesn't matter. It, it's, it's insignificant. Um, but regardless of what's happening on either side of the thing, we, we are left with this kind of picture that this doesn't happen every day. Uh, and one thing is clear. It's unclear. And that means that we need an explanation. And of course, um, that's where we get to in verse 14. Uh, then Peter stood up uh, in verse 14. He's with the 11. He raises his voice. He addresses the crowd and he tells them that what they're seeing and what they're hearing is actually an indication that they now live in the last days and that the salvation of the Lord has now come and been made manifest and is now available uh, to those who are there. And so he says in verse 14, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Not even university students get busy that early. Verse 16, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And so he brings to bear Joel's prophecy. And I'm going to read it now for us. And as I read it, I want you to be listening out as I read it for the answer to the following question. Okay. And the question is this. What will happen during the last days? Got the question? What will happen during the last days? Let me read verses 17 to 21. You can follow along in your Bibles. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servant, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, 20 seconds with the person next to you or around you. What will happen on the last days? Let's just get some of those things out. Alrighty, that should be enough to get things out and kind of hazard some guesses. Now, there's a lot of things in those verses, a lot of things that kind of demark the last days. I want to draw your attention to just two of them. Now, the first one is in verse 17. It's the obvious one, I hope. Um, what we see is that the Spirit of God in the last days will be poured out on everyone and they will prophesy. Now, we've got to do some unbending here when we heard that word prophesy, because usually when we, we hear the word prophecy, what, what we're thinking is prediction of the future, right? Now, and that is not wrong, but it's not really where the Bible kind of centers its idea of prophecy. Now, fundamentally, what prophecy is, is, is the speaking of God's words to people. That's why he had his people, the prophets. They were the kind of the intermediary guys who would listen to what God had to say to them through his spirit, and then they'd pass it on to the people. Uh, and more often than not, they would point backwards as well as forwards, depending on what God wanted to say. So a lot of the Old Testament prophets are kind of riffing off Deuteronomy and its blessings and its curses. And they're basically saying in each new generation as a prophet, God said this. Clearly, this applies here in this situation. There's an issue here that you need to fix. Now, obviously, there were some forward passing things, too, because the prophecy um, that, that God was giving his prophets was pointing towards his final salvation. And we read in Revelation chapter 19 that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So there will be things that point forward. But fundamentally, what prophecy is, is the speaking of God's words, primarily about his salvation and judgment to people. And so what Joel is describing here and what Peter is saying is happening is massive. Because think about it, before now, before the last days, hardly anybody prophesied. Uh, at that time, back then, God's people were dependent on particular individuals upon whom God had placed his spirit and they would communicate his words and his judgments to them. You know, and you, you know these people, people like Moses and Samuel uh, and David and Joel. 
Uh, And David and Joel in particular are actually quoted in this chapter of Acts. And one of the great expectations of the Old Testament that we see in this quote from Joel is that there would come a time when that special relationship and that special dependency between God and his prophets, it would actually be made available to everybody, every single member of God's people from the greatest to the least. And what Peter is saying here is that this thing that you're seeing at Pentecost with the pouring out of the spirit, well, that time is now. The babbling that you're hearing, it's not drunkenness. The tongues of all the nations, that's prophecy. That's the Spirit of God enabling, as we saw back in verse 4. So that's the first thing. We see the Spirit poured out and they prophesy. The second thing uh, is connected to it. I want you to see that it's prophecy, but with a purpose. So it falls down in the last days and there's a purpose. Because why is there an end time pouring out of the Spirit of God? It's not for fun and giggles. It's because something has changed. And we see what's changed there in verse 21. We see that now that it's the last days, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Pentecost is not merely the day of the Spirit, but the day of salvation. And the pouring out of God's Spirit is a declaration that that great end-time gathering of God's people from the nations back to Jerusalem is now. That's why there's a significance that it's the Jews who had been scattered through God's judgment to exile centuries before from all the nations have been now brought back to Jerusalem for a festival and God's spirit comes out and they start speaking and speaking and speaking. Uh, And if you look there in verse 11, what do they speak? They speak the wonders of God, literally the mighty works of God, his works of salvation. And so what does Peter say? Well, he gets up and he says, What you are seeing is that great promise of God that he would one day gather, redeem his people, let his salvation flow down the hills. The day that you have been waiting for has arrived. That's what Pentecost means. And so all that's left to do, Israelites in Jerusalem, is to call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Now, you'd think that maybe that's just the end of the the, the picture there, right? Because in Joel, in the original prophecy, the thing that he quotes when he says, call on the name of the Lord, uh, the Lord in the original context is God himself. Uh, If you flick back there in Joel, in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and kind of a bit onwards, you'll see that the Lord is in capitals. And whenever you see that in your Old Testament, what that tells you is that that is the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh which is God's personal name. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. The name that he disclosed to his people. But the problem that we have is that there's another Lord in Scripture, a lowercase Lord, which translates a different word, and it refers to God's Messiah. And the wrinkle that we have in all of this is that there are two Lords, and both Lords are in this passage. So if you skim your eyes down to verse 34, you'll see Peter later on quote again from David, Uh, This is David in Psalm 110, and he says, The Lord, capital Lord there, uh, at least in the original, says to my Lord, which is the lowercase Lord, the Messiah. Uh, And so it's kind of a little hard to see, uh, but we've got two different people here, God and his Messiah. And so what Peter wants to do to kind of iron out this wrinkle in verses 22 to 36 is he wants to tell us that to call on the name of the Lord for salvation is to call on the name of God's Messiah, who just happens to be God. And to do that, we actually need to know who he is. And so he spends the rest of his time in this section talking about Jesus. 
He pivots in verse 22 and he says in verses 22 to 24, three key things, really. He says that Jesus did signs that clearly showed him to be of God, that you Jerusalem Israelites crucified him unjustly, and then number three, but God raised him from the dead. And the reason these facts are important, the reason that he introduces those things is because they confirm to us that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, Skim your eyes over verse 25 and following. This is another quote of David, this time from Psalm 16. Have a look at what David says about him, that is the Messiah. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And the key thing to get as we read this quote is that even though David speaks and it looks like he's speaking about himself, he can't be. He's speaking about somebody else. And and how do we know that? Well, Peter tells us in verse 29, it's because David died and he stayed dead. Uh, He was abandoned to the realm of the dead. He saw decay. Uh, His tomb is still among us. If we found him, we would find a rotting corpse. If not that, then a whole bunch of skeletons. He is far gone. It cannot apply to him. So what is David doing then? Well, he's prophesying. Verse 30, we find out that he's a prophet and that he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. And so seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, and nor did his body see decay. And this being the case from this point on, what we would be looking for, what the Israelites would be looking for as they looked for their Messiah, the thing that would help them identify who he was, the chosen one of God, the one who would come and rule and save his people, The thing that they would be looking for is that he would not be abandoned to the realm of the dead. And so what happens? Well, for a thousand years, year after year, century after century, every single one of David's descendants died and they stayed dead, rotted away until Jesus. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. And so who is the Lord, Peter says, the one who you need to call on to be saved? What is his name? Well, his name is Jesus. Peter has one more thing to say, and we see it there in verse 33. uh, And this will bring us full circle, kind of connect all of the dots. Um, In resurrecting Jesus, what God does is exalt him to his right hand, at which point he gives Jesus the promised Holy Spirit, whom Jesus then pours out on those who follow him. And don't miss that fact, because what that tells us is that the pouring out of the Spirit from heaven is evidence that God has not merely identified his Messiah in the resurrection, but actually set him on the throne in heaven. And what that means, verse 36, and this is kind of like the climax of Peter's talk, he can say to Israel, you can be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. This Lord reigns. This Lord has ushered in the last days. And it is this Lord that calls on us to call on him to be saved. So we have the event, 
the explanation. Let's go back to our original question. What time is it? Well, with the pouring out of the Spirit on all his people, God fulfills the prophecy of Joel chapter 2 and declares to all of us, particularly the Israelites at that time in Jerusalem, that the last days are upon us. He's vindicated Jesus, the one whom the Jews rejected and crucified, and he's vindicated him by raising him from the dead and exalting him to his throne in heaven where he reigns over all. That's what time it is. And I think that has two implications for us, at least uh, in our own context. Uh, First of all, what it means is that now is the time to call on the name of the Lord. Now, have a look at how the Jews in Jerusalem respond to Peter's declaration that he is both Lord and Messiah. Verse 37. uh, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And just just sit in that for a minute. You've got to understand uh, how real this is for them, right? They have made a big boo-boo. The one man that God has chosen to rule and judge the world as his Lord and Christ is the man that they have murdered and wrongfully crucified. So you've got the double whammy, right? Not only have they actually killed the guy that they've been waiting for, but now they've killed the guy who will judge them. Now, a little bit later on in a, in a later sermon, Peter will say that they killed the author of life, they killed God, and, and as far as I'm aware, as sins go, that's pretty well as bad as it gets. And so the moment that they're cut to the heart, well, that's the moment that they have the terrible realisation of the stupid, stupid thing that they've done, and it hits home. They killed the one that was destined and then was made ruler. And so they cry out to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And this isn't academic for them. This is, this is existential. This is terrible. And Peter's response here, I think, is telling because it demonstrates that he understands the time in which we live. Because what are you expecting him to say? You're expecting him to say something like, well, what are you to do? Nothing. You're sunk. You're stuffed. The only thing that you can do is just wait for the Lord to turn up and wreak his vengeance upon you. But he doesn't say that. Because the time of judgment is not yet. That's the great and terrible day of the Lord. But in these last days, as God pours out his spirit to proclaim his wonders... It is the time of salvation, the time to call upon the name of the Lord and so be saved. And this is the true wonder and mercy of the forgiveness of our King, I think, that even the ones who crucified him, they can receive his pardon. And so Peter replies there in verse 38, this is what you were to do, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And this tells us something about our own sin, because no matter what you have done, no matter how despicable and shameful it is, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved, because that is the time in which we live. So that's the first thing. Second, now is the time to proclaim the name of the Lord. Now, in the book of Acts, the 12 apostles have a particular role in witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. They were the ones who saw it. They were the ones who were commissioned by Jesus personally to preach it. Uh, but at Pentecost, in these last days, God pours out his spirit on every believer. And in doing so, he empowers us to proclaim the name of the Lord too. Not in the same authoritative sense as the apostles, but with no less expectation that people will respond. Because that is what the spirit does. 
If you head over to John chapter 15, verse 26, that's John 15, 26, we find out that the Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. And that Spirit of Truth testifies to Jesus. That's his primary role. He points people to Jesus. And if you're a Christian and that same Spirit dwells within you, then I want to ask you a question. Are you doing that as well? Are you pointing people to Jesus? Do you have your watch set? Or are you living as though you're on a cruise liner when in fact you're on a rescue boat? The mission statement of the CU uh, is that we proclaim Jesus at UWA to present everyone mature in him on the last day when he returns. And the reason we have this as our mission statement is because it is an attempt of us to try and reflect the time in which we live. And one of the great tasks that we share as a community as we gather together and sit under the word together is to make sure that each and every one of us has our watches set to the right time, that we live in the last days rather than you know, something like the lost days. And so that's why we do second semester mission. In fact, it's why we encourage you to evangelise every moment that you're on campus. And it's why we want you to be involved. When it comes to second semester mission, we want you to pray. Uh, We want you to invite your non-Christian friends to those events. Uh, And we want you to do the unthinkable and ask a friend to read Mark Uncover with you. If that thought terrifies you, good. It's terrifying. But you know the thought that should terrify you even more than that? What if you don't? What if you don't proclaim the name of the Lord? What happens to those friends? If I could mix my boat metaphors, the Titanic is heading for the iceberg and most of the people in the world are living on that boat thinking that everything is okay and they have no idea where it's heading because they don't know what time it is. But we do. Now is the time to call on the name of the Lord. And let me tell you, when we understand that and we start acting like that, we see God's salvation reign. I was talking to Javis earlier today. Um, uh, One of the girls uh, started reading Mark Uncover with a non-Christian friend last semester. They finished Mark Uncover. She became a Christian. You know, it works. It's terrifying. It's hard. You won't have the answer to all the questions, but it works. Why? Because it is God's gospel and God's gospel is the power for salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew, and then, of course, the rest of the nations, the Gentiles, people like us. And so for us Christians, what it means is that we need to step out and step up. Because we have the one name that averts disaster. We have the name that saves. won't be easy. It's why God gives us his spirit. He makes us bold. And I just want to say that if the spirit enabled the apostles to speak before kings, he can enable you to speak before your friend. The question is, will you live in the right time and allow the Spirit of God to help you do that?